Hey, welcome to the 71st episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a contributor to The Athletic. The music you're listening to is a new song from MC White Owl, Football for a Buck, in conjunction with my book of the same name. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genres I'm thinking of. And the latest episode features Grant Wall, the Sports Illustrated senior writer and one of the world's leading soccer authorities. And as much as I'd love to talk David Beckham and Kobe Jones, those are soccer players, I think, this episode is really about beginnings. What I mean is, back in the fall of 1996, Grant and I started as fact-checkers at SI, and I thought it'd be fun to travel in time and recall what it was like, who we were surrounded by, what we were trying to be, and how we worked our ways up the masthead. It was a crazy and unique time of our lives, and I was thrilled to revisit this in person with Grant, sitting outside his patio in New York City in the rain, which is kind of cool and kind of funky, and it's all right now on Two Writers, Singing Yang. Thank you for doing this. First of all, Grant, I appreciate it. This is actually, it's kind of funny. I did Wertheim. He came out to LA and I, I did the podcast like this. And he said to me at one point, he goes, is this weird at all for you? And I was like, a little bit. And I actually feel the same way now in a way. Like it's a little different than doing it on the phone or even doing it with someone you haven't known for a long time. You know, like you and I came up together at Sports Illustrated. And I was actually thinking, here's how I want to start this podcast. Okay. I had something happen to me recently and it made me think of you. And here's what it is exactly. I wrote a story for The Athletic about a San Diego Charger. And uh, a guy, I've talked about this on the podcast, but uh, John Walters, who we used to work with, on his website, destroyed the piece. Like, took it <laughs> apart piece by piece. And I was thinking about, about six years ago, you were writing about trying to become president of FIFA and writing about the, it was FIFA, right? Yeah. And I took shots at you for it online. Oh, yeah? And you knew about it at the time. Either okay. you, and I felt bad about that for years. And it reminded me of John Walters doing that. And you, you probably don't even remember this or maybe you do, but I would like to apologize to you in person. <laughs> because, you start the well, no, because I'll tell you something I was thinking. Like, <laughs> I was thinking about how bad it made me feel, right? Because this is a guy who sort of I came up with, and I'm not mad at him, right? Because I kind of feel like every now and then I'll, I've written something about SI and you know, later on someone will call me and be like, why'd you write that? And I'm like, why did I write that, you know? So I actually just want to start by saying, not that you seem to care, but that was a bullshit thing I did. It was totally inappropriate. And if I had something, if I had a problem with something you wrote, I feel like I should have just said something to you or just kept it to myself. Should I reconsider having let you in my yeah. apartment just now? <laughs> you gave me a seltzer too. So this is really a bad. <laughs> anyway, though, thank you. Uh, thank you for doing this, first of all. Yeah, sure. I really appreciate it. So I really was thinking that I, I, I want to make this one about sort of uh, coming up. You and I both started Sports Illustrated within two months of each other. You started in October of 96. I started in December of 96, I guess it is too. You were, you were just graduated, correct? Like just graduated, am I wrong on that? I graduated in June of 96, so I had been an intern at the Miami Herald that summer and then had sort of had to make a choice of whether I wanted to stay on staff in Miami or come to Sports Illustrated as a fact checker. Oh, interesting. So they offered you a job at the Herald? They did as the preps high school beat writer, which is a pretty big deal in yeah. Miami. And in the traditional sense, that was sort of a way to see a career as a writer, right? Yeah. Um, you work your way up through the beats and you become a columnist eventually. And 
you know, that was actually how, at one point I saw my route to Sports Illustrated being was to go through that whole dues paying enterprise at a newspaper for yeah. a great newspaper. The staff at the Miami Herald Sports Department was absolutely Wait, who was it back then? Dan Lebetard, Linda Robertson, Steve Weich, Judy Batista, Edwin Pope, Greg Cody, Armando Salguero, Kevin Ding, Michelle Kaufman was about to join, uh, Greg Doyle. They were amazing. Yeah, it was just really like good. an amazing place to work for three months as an intern. And uh, the Miami Herald, I think, was pretty underrated in terms of the talent. And some of those people are still there. Some went on to other places, obviously. But So it was a really hard choice because in those days, as I'm sure you know from your own experience, not that many fact checkers at Sports Illustrated would go on to be full-time writers. Right. And some people looked at it who told me, they're like, oh, it's a dead-end job. People said that? Yeah. More people who I went to for advice said, take the Miami Herald job over the Sports Illustrated job, which had been offered to me as a fact checker. But I, I looked at it as Bambi Wolf, who hired both of us and is a legendary figure the late Bambi at Wolf. Sports Illustrated, mm -hmm. passed away last year, but she hired so many writers who had a huge impact on the magazine. She had told me that, like, I might get a shot to, to right. do some writing and not just fact checking. And so uh, I gave myself three years when I got to New York and I said, if I'm not a full-time writer after three years, then I will go and look for newspaper jobs. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of funny because we, um, actually, we, we haven't had this conversation before or maybe not in years and years. We actually had somewhat similar paths. I mean, I was, I spent two and a half years at the Tennessean, but I was hired the exact same thing was said to me as you, which is you're going to be a fact checker, but you're going to get a chance to write. And I had people telling me, why would you leave a good daily newspaper? I was working at the Tennessean to take a job fact checking. And I just knew I wanted to work at Sports Illustrated. Is that, why did you? Why ultimately I mean, I did you? I friends in high school, I want to write for Sports Illustrated. Yeah. I have like, my friends like, I have like, you know, yearbook autographs, you know, that were not Kavanaugh style yearbook autographs yeah, that right. were like, you know, like, you know, good luck at Sports Illustrated. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> you yeah. and I have the same yearbook. I swear to God, I'm not just saying this. We almost have the exact same story. Same exact thing. See you in the booth with Marv Albert or see you writing right. on the sports pages. Yeah. And so, I mean, that was something that as someone who got a subscription to Sports Illustrated for Christmas in 1983 from my parents and every year thereafter, huh. read it every week. Um felt like I knew the writers, even though obviously I didn't. And that was what I wanted to do in my career. That was it. You came two months before. We did. We just had this conversation where we started. Your first day was the same day as someone named Mavis Allen. Yeah, who worked there Mavis for, was great. Mavis was great. She probably worked there maybe two years, year and a half. Not that long. Yeah. I started the same day as Jen Wolf, who ultimately went to People Magazine. I feel like people nowadays, young sports writers, it would be hard to fathom the situation we walked into. The whole world of the bullpen is a, such a, it's a, it sounds almost like it would be out of a movie about a magazine from 1990. Like, what would, how do you describe the bullpen? So, I mean, the bullpen was what we called the group of fact checkers, reporters they were called at Sports Illustrated. It was sort of a euphemism mm -hmm. um, for this group of people whose job was to get an article every week, basically, for the magazine that somebody else had written. Right. 
and fact check it and make sure that everything was factually correct in the story. And that is everything from obviously names being spelled right, but basically re-reporting the story and calling the people who were involved in it. And so you would end up, you know, sometimes talking to some college basketball player and, you know, who supposedly had, you know, never met his father right. and saying, oh, so you've never met your father. <laughs> and you'd want to, like, kill yourself right. asking these people these questions. But, like, these types of questions would come up a lot. And you would often invariably get your story at, handed to you at 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning. It was going to close that night, like, at 11.30 p.m. And between 8 a.m. and 11.30 p.m., you had to red check every single fact in the story. I just want to say for people, just to be even more, you literally, when, when you say red check, you literally would have a red pen. And remember, you would go through line, each word, you would put a line in. And if there was any sort of fact, you would circle it. So if it's Derek Jeter, D-E-R-E-K-J-E-T-E-R. It wasn't enough just to know how he spelled it. You had to double check because the last thing you wanted was to have something wrong in one of your stories. Oh, yeah. Because if it, an error got in and somebody wrote in and challenged it, they would call it a challenge letter. Oh, my God, yeah. And if, if somebody told you a challenge letter came in on one of your stories, you would just be like, oh, no. Right. Because if you screwed up, it was on you, the fact checker, not the writer. Right. It's crazy. It did. I will say this: like you learned very quickly how important it was to get facts right at Sports Illustrated, and in general, at a time today when very few publications are fact-checked, there is an element of this is a really appropriate way to go about doing things mm -hmm. and make sure that things are right. Right. It's really interesting. I, I actually had forgotten about the challenge letters. Yeah. And you're like, oh, shit. The worst. Because it'd be like Tom Verducci was the guy. It was a double, not a triple. Tom Verducci would write that in his story. But you would be the one who would get the blame for Tom Verducci's error. But I would also say Tom Verducci would not make many errors. No, Tom, if, if he's any. a bad example. Right. I mean, like there were certain writers who had reputations as you have to fact check these guys harder mm -hmm. because they're pretty lax. And there were other ones like Tom who had amazing reputations yeah. as like you if you were going to challenge something like yourself you would almost want to double check you would want to double check with Tom and just say like how did you get this because you didn't want to like yeah. change anything but I remember being that age so I was when you were hired how old are you I think you're, you're younger than me maybe how old? Uh, so I was 22 okay and I was 24 so two years I remember being I found it intimidating to have to call Tom Verducci and ask him about this stuff. Like I, Tom Verducci, you know, Rick Riley, like uh, Bill Knack. Like these guys were. Invariably, I'm, they were all very nice. Yeah, they were. Actually. They were. I accept the one guy, not that he wasn't <laughs> nice. The famous <laughs> story of BJ Schechter calling Dr. Z. <laughs> Do you know this? And saying, uh, Dr. Z, I have a question. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> did you ever call him? Uh, I did not. Um, and I will say this that, that Dr. Z is a legend, Paul mm -hmm. Zimmerman. Um, but he also had a bit of a reputation for being somewhat gruff right. with fact checkers. Right, right. That's so funny. I don't, um, I don't know if I've ever told you this story. This is when I was writing, and I did a story on Derek Bell, the outfielder for the uh, Mets at the time. Okay. And Linda Marsh, who had been a fact checker for many, many years at the magazine, was very thorough. Yeah. She calls me, and she goes, uh, Jeff, I have a question. Peter said, Peter Carey, an editor, I need to ask you. 
I'm really embarrassed to ask what he said I have to ask you. She goes, Peter wants to know if it's hip hip music or hip hop music. (laughs) (laughs) There's a famous little story about a Sports Illustrated magazine editor who turned grunge in the 90s. I won't name him because I don't want to be unkind, but he changed it to grungy. That's awesome. Did it make the magazine? Grunge music to grungy music. And did it make it? I don't know if it ended up making it. Maybe he got caught, but... He definitely wanted to change it to grungy music. Isn't there another story? See, this is where these go. Isn't there another story where someone started with uh, the first verse of Lucy in the Sky of Diamonds and there was picture yourself on a boat. What's the first picture yourself on a boat on the river? And there was picture yourself on a TK foot, TK yacht type of boat. Do you remember that? No, you don't know that one? I mean, here's what I would say is, is that there's a Dan Jenkins book called You Gotta Play Hurt, which is about essentially his experience as a writer. I remember when that came illustrated. out. And it's a novel, but it's... Do it's, you remember when that came out? I, I think I read it years after it came out. Oh. But, I mean, maybe not. Like, But all I remember was there was this hilarious part where he, he had famous first lines from literature over the centuries as changed by a Sports Illustrated <laughs> magazine editor. I don't remember that. <laughs> and it was pretty great. That's so awesome. That's so awesome. Did you, I mean, to jump around, like I remember, especially coming from a newspaper, and you were coming from college, but also interning at a newspaper, the editing was thick. Like it was not, at the Tennessee, and I'd hand in a story, my editor would read it, a few things here and there, off. I remember being very intimidated um, and to a certain degree turned off as a young writer because I was just, you know, stubborn asshole probably, but that the editing was super, super thick. Disagree? Yeah. At times it really could be. Um, it's funny because I think every writer needs to approach things as what we write is not the word of God and it can be made better. But, but do you really feel that way? Uh, I do. Um, but I also think that there were certainly occasions when over-editing happened. And I think when we started, there were actually three different stages of editing at Sports Illustrated. Was I it only three? I think there's two now. If you're talking about actual senior editor types, okay. there were usually three. Wait, so you would, this is actually interesting. You would hand in a story. Yeah. So I'm Grant. It's 1997. They sign me. They throw me a bone and they throw me... Kansas basketball I'm going to do a story on whoever you would hand it in and it would go to who like what was this route at that time because I don't even remember really uh, the first edit would be done typically by the the college basketball senior editor okay. so that was Greg Kelly at the time it would go to there was a blue pencil and a red pencil I forget which was which like which went first but so there were two other editors above the senior editor who would take a whack at the story and um yeah, I, it's not that way anymore. I think it's two stages now right. um, of editing. And the longer I've been at Sports Illustrated, the less they change my stuff. Right. I think part of that has to do with, you know, I'm more experienced and I've been there 22 years. Right. But I also think the longer you're there, the less they change it. Right. And so the first couple of years, like there were times when I would be um, absolutely thrilled that, you know, my story had just you know, gotten in the magazine. There are times when... You know, I'd be pretty unhappy when I would see an, uh, like the story after it had gone through the editing process. And then sometimes you could 
lobby for some changes back to more your voice as a writer. Yeah. Um, but that's something I really had to adjust to. The, all the writing courses I had taken in college were amazing. You know, I had writing courses with like David Remnick, who runs The New Yorker now, and Gloria Emerson, who covered the Vietnam War for The New York Times, and Lanny Jones, who ran People Magazine. This was at Princeton, all these yeah. people taught, yeah. Great experiences, like real intense writing seminars, semester-long seminars. But one thing that they never talked about was how to deal with editors. And I sort of, if I, I, I haven't taught courses myself in colleges, but if I ever do, I think there's something to be said for spending some time with a young writer on how do you work with an editor? How do you find a good editor? How do you develop a relationship with somebody? Uh, because I was a young punk at times too, and I probably was out of line mm -hmm. at times uh, with certain editors um, being upset about stuff being changed. Did you uh, did you work with Bevins a lot? Mike Bevins? <laughs> yeah, because uh, he was my editor in baseball. I mean, he, some, yeah. Uh, typically, when I worked with him most, and he was at Sports Illustrated for many years, yeah. um, a guy who just, you know, had a prodigious impact on, on Sports Illustrated. Oh, yeah. Um, with the amount of stories that he would interact with. Apologies for the sirens. No, that's, that's, that, that's what I like. You wanted to do this outside. I like the genre. We're in New York, by the way, we're in New York City. We're on Grant's patio. <laughs> yeah. Um, and... You know, Mike was a very no-nonsense editor. He's no longer at Sports Illustrated. Uh, meat and potatoes, I think, is a pretty good way to describe his interest in sports and types of stories in a good way. Well, I was going to say, he um, he used to beat the living shit out of me, right? Yeah. And he was intimidating, and he was gruff. Yeah. And I've always told the, I've told the story a million times about when I had to do a Barry Bonds piece, and I was so happy because I got Bonds to talk, and he calls me at like 6 in the morning, Perlman, if we want to give Bonds a blowjob, we could have brought him to New York. Click. And I tell that story, and I think it comes off as actually I'm slamming him, but it's actually the opposite. Like, I was kind of like you, the way you describe yourself sometimes. Like, I probably, I definitely thought my stuff was better than it was. I definitely thought I was better than I was. I'm not saying you just describe yourself that way, but I'm saying, like, young, with youth comes some, you know, youth is wasted on the young, you know? And he just beat the living crap out of me. And I think. You need that. I needed it. I think everyone needs it to some extent. You don't, you don't want to have it too much. And I do think at times over the years, Sports Illustrated sort of wrote off some talented people mm. who um, went I have on one to in particular. big and better things. Who are you thinking of? Uh, I mean... I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to get anyone in trouble here. I mean, like, I mean, Josh Elliott was a guy. Oh. Uh, Seth Davis. I was thinking Jamal Green. Jamal Green. Yeah. He wasn't too smart. He didn't work out. Life didn't work out so well. You know what Jamal does now, right? Yeah. I've seen him sitting behind Kamala Harris for right. the last two weeks. Um, yeah. I mean, he's now he was a, a great, a he actually, constitutional law professor. He would tag along. He was like the, it was Verducci on baseball, me and Canella, and then Jamal. And Jamal was a really good writer who was super quiet. That was it. He was super quiet and he didn't like kind of put himself out there. But I thought he was a guy like the magazine didn't really nurture and I thought that was a, but if you ask Jamal now, he's like, yeah, it worked out okay for me. It's been okay. I would say, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the other thing I would say is that Sports Illustrated, my experience just from observing things was um, you kind of needed to arrive there as a finished writer. Not totally finished. I mean, there was some room for growth but you needed to be at a certain level yeah. and they really weren't going to 
take a lot of time and, and like work with you on the craft. You kind of needed to know it to an yeah. extent. I mean, you look at a guy like Steve Russian who showed up at, <clears throat> what was it, like 22. Yeah, or Alan Shipnock, guys like that. Yeah, and, and those guys were good magazine writers, very good magazine writers the second they landed. Yeah. All right, so wait, back to the bullpen. We're in this bullpen. It was, what would you say, 15? Not literally a bullpen. No, no, there's a hallway. It's like two hallways adjacent to each other. It's about 15, 20 people. Yeah. Is that what it was? I guess. And we show up, and it's, see, I always remember, but I don't know if you remember the same way I do. I remember as being hyper competitive, not overly antagonistic, but everyone wanted to get to the same place, but not everyone was going to get to the same place. And it wasn't like everyone was going to, but everyone had dreams. Don't you think, I think most, if not all, showed up there with dreams of being an SI writer. It was almost like a reality TV show in a way. Most of the fact checkers wanted to become full-time writers. Uh, Not everyone, but a lot did. And the history at that point in time was, was that Sports Illustrated Sports Illustrated hired most of its full-time writers for quite a while from as like big names from newspapers, mm-hmm. columnists, and they would get in bidding wars with newspapers and spend crazy money right. on the best newspaper columnists in America. Yeah. And so I think we came at a time when a couple of things were happening, uh, you and I at least. In the late 90s, they started to realize that if they could promote from within they could save money yeah and two espn was starting a magazine that was literally advertising itself as a younger version of sports illustrated and so sports illustrated i think at that time might have had more incentive than it had had before to look at younger writers right interesting i actually remember colson calling me in a few times bill colson yeah bill excuse me bill colson who was a managing editor at the time of the magazine Great guy, one of my all-time favorites. Just an interesting guy, like a really interesting guy. It's funny how he was probably younger than we are now at that point, but he was the editor of the magazine. I mean, he ran the magazine, and he was such a fun, he was such a unique boss because he would kind of scurry around the hallway and he'd be like, he talked really fast and he'd be like, yeah, I don't know, maybe we should move a comma over here. I don't know, I don't know if I like the lead to this story. Maybe we should. He was very sort of hands-on. And I, there, some people hated it. Like some, I think, established editors did not enjoy that. I loved it. I loved everything about that guy. I thought he was passionate and I thought he was engaged. And what I liked is he talked to us and we were 23, 24 years old, like we mattered, you know? And um, I remember him calling me in a couple of times when I was just a reporter and he'd be like, hey, Jeff, what are you, uh, I don't know, we're looking for, for the cover. Like there was one cover, Steve Young. Just looking for an idea for the cover. What do you think? And I was like, Niner Nightmare? He's like, yeah, I like that. That's good. And my thrill, to my greatest thrill, the next issue, there it is. Not, I didn't write the really? story. Yeah, but there it was. You had the cover line. I had the cover line. And that, to me, wow. was a huge... Grant's like, wait, that never, that never happened to me. What the heck? <laughs> no, it was like, I just thought the guy genuinely... He just didn't see himself as higher. He just saw himself as a guy running a magazine. Didn't you... No, do you disagree with that? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I owe it a ton to to bill colson um you know who gave me so many writing opportunities early on um but yeah i mean at that point in time you got to remember too si was a weekly magazine it's not now yeah um it was a thicker magazine so like there was just a ton of stuff to worry about if you were running sports illustrated then right and 
and there were a lot it seemed like at the time there was it was much more of a news magazine than it is today yeah, where definitely. you were looking back at things that happened over the weekend and often stories would fall apart if a certain result didn't happen on that weekend because right. i remember covering college basketball and having a story killed because they lost that weekend right and that would never it would rarely happen today. Because well, they'd have to eat the money they just spent to fly you there to begin with. Yeah, and so like travel costs are completely different now than they were in, in those days. Uh, we spend a lot less money on, on stuff like that. Um, you know, I, I remember being assigned to write a story at Michigan State on Charlie Bell, who was having a good season, and he was dating like Miss Michigan. And so... They assign me this story on like a Monday to go like the next day to Michigan. It's literally like a $2,000 round trip from right. Seattle where I was living to Michigan. And you called the travel department to decide to book it, right? Yeah. yeah. And nobody cared that it cost $2,000 then. They would now. And I go and report the story. I even have lunch at Red Lobster with Miss Michigan who wears her sash That's to Red Lobster. Her Miss Michigan sash. That's awesome. Do you think she's still wearing it right now? I doubt it. Yeah. Um, and I interviewed Charlie Bell. Seems like the story is, is in pretty good shape. And for whatever reason, and you never know on these things, because like girlfriends and such, they did not want to pose Miss Michigan in a photograph with Charlie Bell. Who's they? The magazine? Like Michigan State communicated oh, okay. this. And so we killed the story. So that's so funny. The whole thing literally was killed because Miss Michigan, they did like Michigan State was just whoever made that decision. They didn't want her in the thing. And that's I'm amazing. sorry if she hears this now and is disappointed. We're sorry, Miss Michigan, Michigan, 1998. But that's what would happen in those days, and stories just wouldn't run. And so a lot of times when I was just starting out, it was one thing to be assigned a story or to pitch a story, and then write it. But you weren't always certain it was even going to run until it ran. Yeah. And, and it was crushing when your story didn't run. And when, like, I always felt like, and there's some wonderful things that happened. I became a full-time writer after a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but it always felt like anytime you had something really positive happen, then something crushing would happen very soon. Like a story would get killed or something and sort of knock you back down. Yeah. And you just sort of had to deal with it. Do you remember... Um I haven't thought of this in a long time. At the ad tech, ad text was a big deal. So ad text were these. All these weird lingo yeah, from Sports Illustrated. There was an editor named Myra Gelban, and she headed this thing called ad text. And they would only appear in, I don't know what it was, 30% of Sports Illustrated. They were articles. They were one page generally, sometimes two page articles. And they would appear in maybe 30% of the magazines based on advertising. Is that kind of how it was? As I understood it, these so-called advanced text stories that you would see like features in the front or the back of the magazine were extra pages that would go to certain subscribers and certain zip codes but they never totally wanted to make it public that people paying the same amount of money were getting less in some areas of the magazine right others but it was an opportunity for new writers to write features and pitch them i got hired off of an ad text that's how i actually got my job at si was pitching an ad text and getting hired yeah um about applying for the draft early when I was at Delaware. That was my story. 
Yeah, I mean, one of my first stories for Sports Illustrated was on the Jamaican bobsled team training for the 98 Winter Olympics in this basically all-white town in Wyoming. <laughs> this is post-Cool Runnings, correct? Post-Cool Runnings. Basically, this movie had made like $65 million with Disney, and yet Jamaica 2, the Jamaica second sled, including one of the guys who had been on the sled that was in Cool Runnings, yeah. Had no support. They got no money. They had no money. And these guys were working as Domino's pizza delivery guys in Evanston, Wyoming, while they were trying to train for the Olympics. And what was cool was I spent like four days with these guys. They're like the coolest guys ever. And told their story. And I thought that was it. And I'm still in touch with Devin Harris, the driver of Jamaica 2. Not the Mavericks point guard. Correct. Yeah. And... Um, after the story came out in Sports Illustrated, they got some sponsors, and they ended up actually being able to go to the Nagano Olympics. Even though only 30% of readers got to read that story. Apparently, some people among those 30% were the right ones. <laughs> Wait, so those ad tech stories, it was kind of funny. Wertheim and I, I don't remember if you were in this. Like, we had a thing for a while where we were just pitching stories in, in states we wanted to visit. So, he like, I remember he did a story about the North Dakota, like, blah, 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 basketball team, women's basketball team. Yeah. And I did a story about the electric football championships because I'd never been to Canton, and it was in Canton, Ohio, and I thought that would be cool. And you got these stories, but it was a great, a great opportunity. And the other thing was they used to run whatever, catching up with on the front. Remember in the front of the magazine, that was my in. I pitched so many of those. With so few writing opportunities available, you try to latch on to whatever you could because you're competing with other fact checkers to try and get some space in the magazine for your writing. Yeah. So that for quite a while, there is this one page at the front of the, toward the front of the magazine called Catching Up With. Right. And it, dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. And you picked uh, somebody who'd been on the cover of Sports Illustrated and tracked them down and write, wrote a story about them. It was only like five or 600 words. Yeah. But I remember slaving over those five or 600 words over crazy numbers of hours for just like five or 600 words. That, that was at a time when I would like have like a 400 word scorecard item and try and overwrite the yes. crap out of it. Of course. And, and they'd be like, shh, shh. Nah, yeah, shh, it's ridiculous. Right. And, um, but that was a way to get some work in the magazine. There was also like the TV TV This Week column oh, yeah. in front of the magazine. That was a way to get some stuff. But there literally was no functioning website. Right. So there was no way to sort of make a, a, your, boss, your bosses notice you through good writing on the website because, and, and this is indicative of a larger problem, obviously, at Sports Illustrated and Time Inc. in those days, there wasn't an advanced website. Right. And there wasn't for many years thereafter. Right. Um, I just want to say two stories about catching up with real quick. I had one kill that broke my heart. I found there were three women sprinters from like a 1960s issue of this, like amateur sprinting in Texas, you know, when they had Big weird- hair, I remember the color. Yes. Yeah. And I found one of the three women. Yeah. And she was like the third pictured. And I wrote the whole thing and they were like, no, she's too obscure. And then one that actually caused for a long time real friction. It kind of broke my heart for a while. I did Vince Ferragamo, former yeah. Ram quarterback. And- I've talked about this with him and I've talked about it. It's Paul Gutierrez, who we worked with, great guy, covers the Raiders now. Paul's, Paul had a tragedy that happened while we were there. And while he was gone, I pitched Vince Ferragamo and I did a Vince Ferragamo f catching up with. And he came back and he was livid with me, like livid to the point I thought he was going to beat me up. And he told me that before the tragedy happened, 
he had um, pitched Ferragamo or told to me that he was going to do Ferragamo. Now, I had no memory of that whatsoever, but I don't doubt him. I just didn't remember it. And it kind of actually shows you how, like, it was a competitive little world there. Like, we all wanted it. And something as small as a catching up with almost got my ass kicked by a guy who easily could have kicked my ass. You know, I, I just, maybe you didn't feel it as much as I did as far as just, like, I feel like we were all gunning for something. I mean, I guess what when I look back at it, it's been a long time. Yep. Um, there are quite a few talented, aspiring writers in a in a space. There wasn't, in my opinion, a lot of, you know, pages in the magazine that were available. And so, even though your interest was in different sports than my interest was at the time, my interest at the time was like college basketball and soccer. Right. Um, though I did a bobsledding story and other right. stuff, you know, but yeah. like, um, and so if you got assigned, like I remember this, I remember you got like, you were allowed to go out and do some story on like Houston Oilers or Bum Phillips. Oh, or the something. Tennessee Titans were, oh, Bum Phillips in Goliad, Texas. Yeah. I went uh, horseback riding with Bum Phillips. Yeah. Which is, which is cool. But I remember like, at text being like, yes. Um, I, but I also there was some other stuff with the Houston Oilers. Anyway, like I remember. I being did the like, Tennessee Titans first game. Houston okay. Oilers first game in Memphis. I yeah, and so like the fact that they picked you to do that, I remember feeling like, oh wow, like that's really impressive. Like you know, Jeff's getting this opportunity. I didn't feel like a burning hatred toward right. me or anything. No. And but there certainly were some people who I think, you know, really took the competitiveness <laughs> pretty far. Would you be? Were you jealous back then of people or no? Uh, I don't think so. I, I I think, um, what's the best way to put it? Like, I wasn't, I, I mentioned earlier that there was a time, there were times I could be a punk with editors. Like, I was, uh, I thought I could write for Sports Illustrated. I had that confidence. Um, it's not so much that, I thought I was a completely finished writer or or that but I don't know what the best way to put it is I mean like I kind of felt like what other people did um, didn't have too much of an impact on what I was doing right right I feel like you were uh, more mature than I was at that point like I think inside <laughs> I've actually like through the years in this business I've eliminated 99% of any jealous feelings I feel like if if your book sells great, that does not affect my book in any way, shape, or form in a negative way. If anything, it's a positive because the more books sell, the more books publish, blah, blah, blah. I do feel like when I was coming up, I wasn't rooting against people, but I would, you know, if I saw someone getting a really great assignment or someone young or... I remember like Alan Shipnock, great guy, young writer at the time, was, you know, I think about the same age as us in that range and was rolling along and I think he was the youngest senior writer ever hired at SI. And I remember being like, oh, man, why, why him? Why not? You know, like to some degree in my head, I just think, I don't know, I a think little bit. I think it's being human and, and being that age. I also think that the phrase 23-year-old writer or 25-year-old writer, like you grow out of that eventually. Yeah. Literally, you do. And yeah. so before too long, like you're, you're just not a writer. young writer anymore. And so... I'm 44 now. And so, you know, nobody really thinks of it in terms of, you know, 44 year old writer. 
Uh, I, what I can say is, is that I'm certainly not in my 20s anymore. And I don't try and act like it. Uh, I just try and do good work. It is interesting how at some point you're no longer the prodigy. Like it happens to everybody. At some point you're just not, whoa, like there's something special. Ray Thompson said this to me on this podcast. He's like, blah, blah, blah. You can write as many books as you want. This is what he said. He said, you'll never be the 24-year-old motherfucker with an SI credential walking into a baseball clubhouse. I think that's very true. Maybe, but like, I don't know any SI writers, including myself, who actually thought in those terms. I did. I, I, I'm a badass walking no, no, into no. this major league clubhouse. No, no, no. I'm like gonna like, not about it. No, no, no. Guns a blazing. No, that's not what like I mean. Every, most of the people I know were tortured and <laughs> lacking in confidence at times, and wondering if they no, deserve to be doing what they were doing. Um, but don't you? And remember? we're just trying to do their like. I, you never had a moment when you were like, I'm not talking about badass. Like, I never walk. I was always terrified walking in baseball clubhouses. Yeah. I still carry that with me. But baseball's the worst. Baseball's the worst. My dream was to write for Sports Illustrated, much like you. My dream from the time I was in high school, yeah. I, when I told my mom I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated, like, that was my dream, right? So I will say, standing along the third baseline before game one of the World Series at Yankee Stadium next to Verducci. And VJ Lavero, and you know all these writers, and you have and talking to Joe Torre. I didn't think I was great, but I was pleased with myself. You know, I was like, I made it. You know, this is my goal, and here I am. And that that is something. There is something special about that at a young age that fades a little bit over time. You don't think? No, I mean, like, uh, yeah, I, I think especially earlier in your career when you're in that situation and you you do have to sort of pinch, or pinch yourself like but I mean that still happens actually from yeah. time to time like this summer occasionally like you know for during the men's world cup in Russia our studio for Fox Sports was literally in Red Square with St. Basil's Cathedral as the backdrop and I would sit there sometimes before we started a show and just sort of look around and be like how the hell did I end up here? Right. And this is incredible. And I never would have thought I would be here with Gus Hiddink and Kobe Jones and, and like all these people I used to write about and watch on TV. And so I, I like the fact that there's still something in me that can feel that. That's awesome. That's actually great. You know, like don't, I mean, it's been worth it. Wouldn't you say? Like, our lives have paralleled each other in many ways as far as career. Like, we start at the same place. We've had these careers. We're still in journalism. We're sitting here on your couch, you know, drinking seltzer. Yeah. I feel like it's been worth it. You agree? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I, I, I've been at Sports Illustrated for 22 years. It's been an amazing place to work. Um, I'm very privileged, very thankful about opportunities that came along and I worked really hard to make the most of it and sometimes didn't know what was the next best step to take. You know, I went full-time soccer in 2009 after doing college basketball as my main sport for 13 years. Oh yeah, I remember thinking you were on crack actually when you did and that. I had editors at Sports Illustrated say like, what are you doing? Like, soccer? Are you kidding me? And um, Why'd you do it? Because I liked it. Um, I, I liked covering college basketball. I grew up with it uh, growing up in Kansas um, and ended up having 13 really good years on the college basketball beat when I would do soccer on the side, like in the summers. 
and it actually, you know, it worked out pretty well. And, um, you know, I ended up doing all of our, you know, the magazine's first big stories on LeBron James and Kevin Durant cover stories and, you know, Steph Curry. And um, I liked college basketball because invariably the people involved, the athletes and the coaches wanted to talk to you. Right. I always just wanted to talk to people who wanted to talk to me. Right. And I felt like more in the pro level, that wasn't the case as much. That was my sense. I had some sort of not great experiences covering baseball a couple of times. Because it's the worst. Like, everyone says David Ortiz is, like, the nicest guy ever. That guy was a complete jerk to me. Was he? What did he do? Like, I was living in Boston. This was, like... Yeah, I was going to say, how long ago was this? 04, 05. And it was after they won the World Series. And because I lived in Boston, I guess SI decided... Uh, they wanted to do a David Ortiz story, you know, big poppy, you know, and like, so I go there uh, to Fenway. I'm told that he want he's aware of it, wants to do the story, and I go up to him and introduce myself in the clubhouse, very cramped clubhouse in Fenway, yeah, by not the way, good. with a lot of media, and he basically he's like, oh, come back tomorrow at this time. So I'm like, okay, I'll come back tomorrow. I come back tomorrow, or the next day, and um, I'm just kind of standing there. I go over to talk to him. He's on the phone, doesn't want to talk. And then there's a line, like a tape line around the perimeter of the clubhouse at that time in Fenway. And the only thing he said to me that day was he gets off the, his cell phone briefly to tell me that I, I'm not supposed to cross the line. I hate those moments. And and so after the second day of him not wanting to talk to me, after I'd been told that he want he was totally cool with it, like I call my editor, I, I I I talk to the agent, and the agent all he could say was, "You can't talk to him about this or this or this. Don't talk to him about Tanyan Sturts." And I'm like, I don't even I don't even follow baseball. I don't, I don't even know who Tanyan Sturts is. Tanyan Sturts is. What are you talking about? <laughs> And eventually, the third day... Tanya Sturts wasn't your first question for David Ortiz? <laughs> the third day, it was so clear that he did not want to do this story, Ortiz. And that was it. And, and it just didn't get done. But like, Does it drive you crazy? Like, I know we, we, we could share stories on this a million times over. <laughs> Couldn't David Ortiz have just said to you at the beginning, I don't really... I once did a story on Paul Canerco, Chicago White Sox, right? Yeah. I flew out to Chicago. He did not know I was coming. As I said, just go out and talk to him. He says to me, he's like, what's your name? I'm like, Jeff Perron. He goes, you know, Jeff, um, I really don't want to take attention away from the team right now. I feel really good about the team. I just don't want to draw attention to myself. Would you mind if we don't do the story? I I just really don't want to do it. I don't want to make your life hard, but I don't really want... I actually said to him, I said, I can totally respect that. He didn't know I was coming. He was super polite about it. He just didn't want to be the subject of a story. That's his right. Why can't everyone just be like that? Just tell me you don't want to do it. I'm, that's cool with me. At least I didn't have to travel to have David Ortiz tell me that. Did you have another? Do you have another good one? I mean, invariably, I, I covered very little baseball over the years, <laughs> but it would, I would always run into problems. When I was an intern in Miami, Dave Justice. Oh, my God. He's legendary awful. Like, I'm in the Marlins clubhouse, and apparently I interfered in Dave Justice's ping pong game or something. Yeah. He, like, threatened me. He actually threatened you? Yeah. And I was just like, seriously? Are you kidding me? Right. Um, so what happened when you fought him? How'd that go? Yeah, it didn't happen at the time. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, I mean, like, 
I actually spent very little time in, with baseball over the years, but like it was invariably a bad experience. Are soccer players generally agreeable and chill? Is that a yeah. sport that lends itself to kindness? Uh, they are, especially Americans. I think it's you know men and women because they grow up in a country where their sport is not the biggest sport. So they tend to be people who want to talk to you right. as a journalist. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to cover soccer. Like, It's not that I got... You know, I, I ended up hating college basketball. I just felt like there was not as much variety in the stories I was telling in college basketball as there was in the soccer stories I was telling. Right. And I loved the domestic and the international aspect of soccer. As far as the travel or as far as the people you're interviewing? Yeah, I mean, it's taken me to places I never would have imagined I would have gone. Like, you know, I went to Angola for a story on Didier Drogba during the African Nations Cup in 2010. I've been to backwoods China and random parts of basically every continent. You know, the what's, the scariest, what's the scariest flight you've ever been on? Um, thankfully, I've never had a scary, scary flight. I've had a couple, you know, we're about to land, then you go back up. Yeah. But that's pretty That's common. not so bad. Yeah. The scariest situation I ever had was I got held up at gunpoint in Honduras in 2009. Oh, what happened? Um, so the U.S. was playing a World Cup qualifier in San Pedro Sula, uh, where they eventually actually qualified for the 2010 World Cup. And I had a free day the day before the game, and there had been a coup in... Honduras, a few, like a couple months before, and the deposed president had holed up in the Brazilian embassy in the capital, capital Tegucigalpa, which is like a five-hour drive from the game site. So that Brazilian embassy had been surrounded for weeks by Honduran police. At the same time, Honduras was about to qualify for its first World Cup in like 30 years, and so... What the idea for me, the story I wanted to do was I wanted to drive the five hours from uh, the, the game city to the capital city where the deposed president was holed up mm. and interview people along the way about how this very divided country was being united by the success of the soccer team. And so that's what I did. I rented a car. I drove stupidly by myself um, to the capital. And through a weird connection with Seth Davis's dad, Lanny, Lanny Davis, Davis mm -hmm. I actually got an interview with the president of the country of Honduras, who, you know, they was part of the group that had deposed the previous president. And so, I figured that was a good enough reason to do the story, travel the day before. I was going to drive back that night, the night before the game. So that afternoon, I get to the capital. I go to the Brazilian embassy where the, uh, the deposed presidents hold up, and I interview some of the Honduran police who are surrounding and been surrounding it about their excitement for seeing the game the next day. They're, they're tired of this nonsense. They just want to see the game. I take out my cell phone camera, take some pictures of these guys, which was a mistake. Yeah. I, drive, I walk back to my car. This is broad daylight near like, the U.S. embassy and other embassies. And this 20-year-old kid or whatever, like, runs up behind me and puts a gun to my head. Whoa. So I hand him my phone and my wallet and hoped that he would leave. And he did. So what's that like? Like, immediately after that happens, what is that like? Um, scary as hell. Yeah. Um, had never been a situation like that before or since. Uh, kicking myself a little bit because... Um, 
the smart thing to do if it would be to not have done this at all, not to make the side trip, which wasn't necessary, uh, or to at least go with somebody else. I was by myself. Um, thankfully, my backpack was still in the trunk of the car, so yeah. that had my passport, um, but I didn't have any credit cards. Um, you know, I lost my phone. Um, but I had Marriott points. I always felt like this should be a good like ad for Marriott and Marriott points, which is like the sports journalist friend. Yeah. I was able to stay that night at the Marriott Tegucigalpa because I had Marriott points. There you go. And got my credit cards canceled. Even still got the interview with the president of the country. It had to be over the phone. He made this. Were you joke. writing it? Did you like you just? Or, I was recording you? it. Yeah, right. Um, and wrote about it and. He may, tried to make a joke like, oh, the guy who mugged you, you know, must have been, you know, a supporter of my rival, you know, ha ha ha. Uh, yeah, yeah, not funny. And, hey. and then the, the next morning I drove back to uh, the city where the game was, San Pedro Sula. The U.S. won three to two that night and qualified for the World Cup. And I wrote my story. But I felt bad also because I was part of the story. Like I was in the Associated Press story. Wow. Yeah, an American journalist was yeah. mugged at gunpoint. I'm just like, ah, oh, man, that sucks. Yeah, interesting. I actually remember after the John Rocker story when I was interviewed, and it's really uncomfortable, and someone asked, were you scared? And I said, I, I was scared. And for the next five or six Thanksgivings, my brother would always go, I was scared. And I never lived that down fully. So always better to stay out of the story if you can. I just remember Tim Howard after that game, they just qualified for the World Cup. Was like, first thing he said was, you okay, Grant? Wow. <laughs> But at least they care. You know, no, the, the, I remember Buster only. Do you know Buster at all? Yeah. yeah him, him telling me one time he, uh, he broke, he was covering the Yankees for the Times, broke his thumb. This is a team he was covering for years. He shows up one day with his thumb in a splint. One guy asked what happened. You know, like the one way relationship of it. You're saying we're soccer, not that way. I've been covering the sport going back to 1996. So, right. um, you know, you develop relationships with folks, and that's one of the neat parts about um, about the job, I think. Um, you know, is... I, I've always thought, my guess is you experience this as well, is like, it's you may get in the door the first time with somebody because you work for Sports Illustrated or some mm -hmm. particular title, but in the end, how it's how you cover that person which is going to determine the sort of working relationship yeah, totally. that you have and that doesn't mean you have to be overly positive or anything just you know be be fair and and, and thorough and, and good at your job i had something happened yesterday that like uh not yesterday last week that kind of reaffirmed something in me it was um former laker coach jack mckinney died it's a long story he coached the lakers and he coached the sacramento kings a little and he was a big part of my book about the 80s lakers and his daughter texted me and said, I just want you to know, I know you really cared about my dad. And, huh. and I did actually. She texted me and I said, do you want me to, uh, I said, do you want me to spread that, put it out there? I, I certainly can. She said, that'd be great. And I put it out there and uh, I told Jeannie Buss and she had the Lakers send something and Wertheim called the Blazers because he coached with the Blazers and they sent something. And I, I, I reached out to a guy at the New York Times who I knew who wrote obituaries and he wrote the obituary. And my dad calls me and he says, um, I was reading the Times and your book was mentioned in an obituary about Jack McKinney. And I was like, well, the only reason that obituary exists is because the daughter called me to huh. tell me that he died. And I just like, I feel like along the way in this job, you, I never set out to do this to like make friends with the athletes ever. I never thought about making friends. But you like, you go on this life journey 
where you dig into people's lives and you spend a lot of time with people and some people you really get to know and you just develop these bonds with people that I find really strong and, re- and it doesn't happen that often. Maybe for me it doesn't. Maybe for you it does more because you cover sports specifically. But I think there's something really kind of beautiful. Like I love that she reached out to me to tell yeah. me that her dad died. You know, that does not happen that often, you know? Yeah, and also too, I mean, like, if you do something long enough, you know, sometimes news comes to you. Right. It's not necessarily just coming from you pursuing it. Right. Um, you know, different types of news. Um, one thing that's weird for me is I covered college basketball for 13 years, developed some really good relationships with, um, you know, especially coaches because they're, they're the ones who stick around. Yeah. You know, whether it was Mark Few at Gonzaga or Roy Williams at North Carolina or Tom Izzo at Michigan State. Um, and lots of other ones too, Billy Donovan. Um, like, I left the beat and I didn't like, I, I feel bad. I should have contacted those guys and just said, thanks. Thanks for right. over the years. But it was like, suddenly I was like totally in on a new beat. Right. You know, and soccer is different from, from basketball. Right. And, um, but I will say this, like, you know, for the soccer community that I've covered, you know, I've been covering some of the same people since the nineties, you know, and made them angry at times. And I've always felt like if you're going to make someone angry on the beat you cover with something you write, give them a chance to vent. Do you enjoy that? Cause I, I agree with you and I do it, but I hate it. Um, I just think it's part of the job and I think it's a smart part of the job. Let him vent, you know, and I, I don't typically, you know, fire back. Uh, right. But it, I think it at least allows you to move forward and potentially, you know, continue working with that person. Um, oh, so it's not about being right or wrong. Like, that's the interesting thing about it. The person vents to you. Well, you wrote blah, 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 blah. It doesn't actually matter if you were right or wrong. Like, they just want to get something off their chest. You don't need to win that argument. You don't need to win an argument, but, like, you do need, if it's a reporting thing that they're upset about, yes. you do need to be correct in your reporting. Right. But if they just think the story was bullshit, like this is not, yeah. I hated that story. All right. Don't you think like, okay, let me know how you feel and then we can just move on. Yeah. I mean, I remember Tony DeChico not long before the 1999 Women's World Cup. He was the coach yeah, of the I remember, women's actually. team. Yeah. And I had written something that he didn't like. And I basically let him yell at me on a soccer field in Hershey, Pennsylvania after a game for about 10 minutes. It's like, okay. What was his gripe? Do you remember? I mean, it was a long story about, um, yeah, it was a really long story, put it that way. Uh, I mean, Scott Price had written a very compelling story in Sports Illustrated magazine about the, the sexual harassment charges uh, against Anson Dorrance, the North Carolina, Carolina women's yep. soccer coach. And one of the players who brought those charges was named Debbie Keller, and she was a borderline player for the to make that World Cup team and she had not been brought into the national team camp after that had happened. And I wrote a column that was critical of that. Right. Now, I guess what I would say is is that Tony DeChico got a chance to vent and scream at me and I was okay, okay. And we moved forward. I spoke to him during their amazing run to the 99 Women's World Cup title and ended up developing a really good relationship with Tony DeChico who 
very sadly passed away last year. Oh, I didn't know uh, that. From cancer. Uh, and he ended up being a guy that I worked closely with at, at Fox covering Women's World Cup and women's soccer, who I had some wonderful dinners with over the years. And really, really great guy. Right. Good man. And miss him a lot. Um, and I understand that all that sort of, all of that is just part of, part of the job. Before we continue with Two Riders Singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, and I really want to show her my more sensitive side. Casey, I wrote a poem. Can I read it to you? I guess so. When the wind blows and our souls stir to life. Dad, get to the point. The dimmest of fortunes fall toward Earth's grasp. Dad, seriously, this sucks. And that is why, when I seek the finest throwback sports merchandise, I visit 503-sports.com, because when I am clothed, I am happy. And 503 Sports has awesome USFL jerseys. That's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. I want a 503 Sports jersey too. Thanks, daughter. It was from the heart. And if you visit 503-sports.com and type in coupon code YANG18, you will get 10% off your first purchase. I'll do that, father. I'll do that. It's interesting how... um. It's almost like as you get older, it's like you're never going to be the hot young writer again, right? But you actually do get better in this business as you get older, I think. I really do. I think I believe that in a very strong way. Um, you disagree? No. I, I mean, I, I would hope you would get better at your job as you get older. I mean, like, I think that's true. I think that the big difference between when you and I started in the 90s and today you still make choices, right? You write more books than I do. Mm. I write some. You, you write do TV. Books. I don't do TV. Right. right. Um, there's just so many more platforms now. And so I think I actually grew up thinking that as you got older in whatever job you were doing, you were supposed to actually not work as much right. as you got but older. But you work more. Actually, it seems like I work more. But you enjoy your work, don't you? I do enjoy my work. But I also, um, I think there are probably some limits as to how much you can do I like being in the middle of things but you know in, in 1996 all that mattered was that once a week print magazine yeah and now the, the Sports Illustrated print magazine is part of all sorts of things that I'm all sorts of platforms that I'm writing for so I write for Sports Illustrated's website I do one or two podcast episodes a week for Sports Illustrated. I do a 30-minute weekly video soccer show for SITV, the streaming channel, every week. Yeah. Um, I do work for Fox Sports television, typically insider segments, or I was on the night show at the Men's World Cup every night this summer. I mean, there's just so many things. But you don't have to do them all. You choose to, wouldn't you say? I think it's a mix of like things I want to do and things I, I, I my bosses want me to do. Like no. when Sports Illustrated started a streaming channel um, last year, about exactly a year ago, I came back from book leave on October 2nd of last year and was told that day we're starting a streaming channel in November and we want you to host a 30 minute weekly soccer show. And that second I knew that my job had fundamentally changed. Right. So that's, it's a good show, by the way. I have no idea how many people watch it, right. but it's like a good show. And 
it's a priority of the company. And so I feel like it's important for me to do the podcast stuff. I think they probably wouldn't want me to do more than one episode a week as sort of uh, let's talk about the news of soccer. And I'm the one who insists on doing a, an interview episode every week. That's like 30 to 45 minutes of someone interesting in the soccer world. Right. Had a wonderful interview with Bob Lee yesterday for that. And it's one of my favorite things that I do. Right. Um, so I don't want to stop that. Right. Um, all that stuff is happening. And so like, I never want to stop writing. And so that's where the challenge is. I think these days is just trying to find the, the time to write magazine stories or at least magazine style stories that would go online. Here's what I feel like I have now that I didn't have 20 years ago. And I wonder if you, you mirror this or not. Number one, I don't get intimidated by athletes anymore, generally. Uh, number two, I think I'm better at interviewing people, generally. Um, and number three, I'm not nearly as much a perfectionist as I used to be when it came to writing. And I don't beat myself up. I want everything. I have the same standards I had when I was a younger writer. I want everything to be the best I can possibly be. But I don't kill myself. I think I was. we were probably similar in this regard. Like, if, a, if I didn't like how a story came out in SI, I was pissed. If I didn't like what was under my byline, I was really upset with myself. I'd beat myself up. Right? That stuff would eat me up. It doesn't really happen with me anymore. I'm different in that regard. You? Yeah, it's different. I, I think that the biggest single change for me as I've gotten older is you learn what you don't need to do in the job. Like, what do you mean? I mean, I think that's one of the values of experience in any job that you're in for a number of years is when I started out, I would over-report every story yeah. and often not leave enough time for writing. And then I would, or, or I would be tortured about some 500 word scorecard item and you're like look dude you're not writing something that's going to be in the literary canon here you're writing a scorecard item for sports illustrated and, and realizing that that didn't that wasn't going to determine the future of my career do it well um but don't overdo it um and and so like you know i've covered seven men's world cups now i know what i need to do and i know what i don't need to do and that saves me a ton of time when you actually have the experience of knowing what you don't need to do. Right. Interesting. Let me ask you a final question. Give me your uh, give me your breakdown of the uh, what year would it be? Nineteen ninety nine Sports Illustrated uh, basketball team. What kind of squad were we? A pretty good one, uh, playing in the corporate league at uh, Chelsea Piers. At Chelsea Piers, I always felt like the lower the skill level in those corporate leagues, the more chance there was of like fights taking place. Yeah. And like, I remember one time they were like, I swear, I don't know if it was our game, you know, like folding chairs being swung at people and stuff. I like think I missed that one, but I do remember a fight at one of our games. Um, but Steve Russian, ter uh, terrific uh, shooter, tall guy. Yeah. Um, you were more of a... Uh, What's the best way to put it? Brad Lowhouse? Um, Greg Dryling? I don't remember you, like, scoring much. No. But, like, you were a guy that liked... Oh, you did that stupid fake. Hey! You did that the stupid pump fake. fake. That's not stupid. I learned that from terrible. Dan Monahan at the University of Delaware. I think it was actually traveling. It was certainly not most traveling. Time, Grant. Grant. Most of the time, Grant. I thought it was traveling. 
You're hurt. You're st- you're overstepping a line right now. I'm just saying. We have Chris Ballard, who was a star. He came in and was clearly so much better than anyone that you're just like. Yeah, he was really good. Feed the ball to that. John guy. O'Keefe, really good. Keefe is pretty good. Sean uh, Gregory, former Princeton player. There was a beautiful. What I really loved about those games was afterwards, we would all go to a bar, and it would be like sitting around and just telling stories about you know different war stories from the road and Steve Russian was a great storyteller and still is I can always talk to writers like I love talking writing and I love sitting around with writers and those are some of my favorite times sitting and just talking about writing you know it was a really cool time um, you know I think like it was funny because like Steve Russian is a guy who I, I literally think is a genius and I don't yeah. think I would say that about anybody else I've ever worked with including Jeff, you yeah, sorry yeah, Jeff. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, this was a guy who probably didn't need to be hanging out with a <laughs> 23-year-old punk writer. Yeah. And yet played basketball with us, would go out for beers afterward. I remember in, the, in 1999, he and Simon Broody, the amazing photographer, and I would watch Manchester United's Champions League run to the championship at this bar called Fiona's every Tuesday or Wednesday whenever they had champi- Champions League games. Um, and I th- always got the sense that the editors asked Steve to move to New York to, like, mentor some of the young writers. Uh-huh. And the editors didn't realize that, like, a lot of it was us going out for beers <laughs> and basically all of us bitching about the editors. Right. So funny. <laughs> so funny. Um, that's really... I will say one thing, and I wonder if you... What really impressed me about SI is just people were really smart. Like, quick. I remember being in scorecard meetings with Jack McCallum and Rich O'Brien and Hank Hirsch, and there's this bam, 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 ideas being thrown around, one-liners being thrown around. How about we do this? I'd never seen anything like that. And the, I just thought the minds raced at a really quick speed at SI, and I was not at first with it. Like, I just thought, holy shit, these people are so smart and so clever and so on the ball. Yeah. And I need to bring my really high game just to and fake it. Yeah, I mean, I saw that too. Um, and it's pretty cool. I mean, like, the thing that I always felt like, and I still feel this way, probably even more in some ways is, is that there's still so many good writers at Sports Illustrated. Yep. And we're almost never, ever in the same place you know, a few a few folks live in New York, but people live basically around the country. And so I actually really look forward to the Summer Olympics because that's essentially the only time that a, a lot of Sports Illustrated writers end up in the same place. And you're reminded, you know, at dinners and if you get a chance to get beers at the end of a very long day of work, just what a special group it is. Um, I wish it happened a little more often, but uh, it's still a really special place. Do you remember when we were first there? Do you remember your, because this really stuck with me, when you're just a staff writer, you were promoted to staff writer. So you, me, and John Wertheim, we were promoted, I think, from reporter to writer, reporter, writer, reporter, staff writer, staff writer, senior writer, or training, all together. And I remember when you were promoted to staff writer, you're invited to the, at Christmas time, they'd fly in all the writers and it have a state of Sports Illustrated meeting. Do you remember this? And like Peter Carrier would lead it and then Bill Colson would say something. I just remember being surrounded. Bill Knack, Lee Montville, 
Riley, Rush, I mean, Hoffer. I can name a million. And just being like, truly, truly being like, I do not belong here. Like, this is, I would say I'm Leitner on the Dream Team, but I'm not even Leitner on the Dream Team. I'm like Leitner's little brother who tagged along. I just remember the talent was so freaking thick. Yeah, I mean, yes, certainly to some extent. Um, I never took that to an extreme. I, I I guess what I would say is it would be easy to say that, like, I had no business being there. Yeah, and but you didn't feel that way. I mean, I didn't feel that to an extreme. Yeah. Um, and now I'm, like, one of the oldest writers there. Yeah, it's so <laughs> I mean, funny. The, like, longest tenured. Right. Um, but... Um, it was a, it was sort of a mix and, and changed at times, but it was somewhere in between that extreme you're talking about and the other extreme of the Wright Thompson. You're walking in guns ablaze, right. like I, I never here. felt either one of those. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, look, my hero was Frank DeFord. I thought I was your hero, and <laughs> like to actually be able to spend time with Frank DeFord. Um, and you know, in other amazing writers, and there's a, a long list. Yeah. Um, it it's just yeah, it's it's when you grow up with it, like we did. Um, it's it's pretty cool to have that opportunity. I feel like young writers may not understand what it was to grow up with Sports Illustrated. I'm sure we had the same experience. Like SI was my weekly. But I didn't. My family would only get Sport Magazine because it was too expensive, okay. and we would. I would go to the mail pack library, the plastic binder and sit there and read every article in sports illustrated and just absorb it. You know, it was like, so reaching it like you, like for you, it was an absolute sort of dream for me, like a life ambition, you know? Yeah. I mean, and obviously so many things have changed in sports media and ESPN is so big now and, and sports illustrated what it was in the seventies, eighties and even the nineties. I don't think it's possible to quite be that at this point. Yeah. But I would also push back against any of the stuff out there uh, saying that Sports Illustrated is dead, doomed, or, or whatever. Right. Um, because I don't think it is. I think there's a tremendously talented group of writers that's there. There's a lot more women at Sports Illustrated writing these days. Who Remember are when we came up? Kelly Anderson. Yeah, I that mean, like, you had Stephanie Epstein on last week. Yeah. She's terrific with this amazing article on the Orioles player. Um, and and there's several others, too. Um, and so I think that's cool. And, you know, I, I think also, too, it's interesting for me to see the cover of Sports Illustrated still has value. Um, there's nothing in the digital realm that is an equivalent of the cover of, a, of a, ma- a print magazine. Do you still get charged up if you have the cover story? I do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, earlier this year for the World Cup preview, you know, we did like three different covers. I did a story on Mohamed Salah. Yeah. But it was interesting. Not only was it... I feel like it's starting to rain heavily here. Um, this is we awesome. Do, we do have a roof. Yeah, though, this is here. cool. Um, not just that the Sports Illustrated cover still has value to me as a writer, but to the people we cover, there's still value. Yeah. Like, Mohamed Salah, who's from Egypt of all places, like, 
really, really wanted to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated magazine. That's awesome. And he didn't do any other pre-World Cup interviews, sit-down interviews with written publications. Like, right. We were the only one he did in the world. Right. Because he wanted to be on the cover, and he, he ended up being on the cover. Um, so I think there's something to be taken out of that that um, personally I'd love to see Sports Illustrated go back to once a week the magazine yeah we'll see if that ends up happening yeah um, I just think there's nothing to frame anymore I actually mean that I think the cover is special in a way now even more than it was because there's nothing to frame anymore people don't get newspaper print newspapers by and large anymore yeah um, ESPN the magazine just announced they're going monthly like there's nothing to frame anymore. So I actually think if you said to uh, Aaron Judge, you're going to be on the cover of SI next week, even though he's whatever, 24 years old, I think he'd be psyched. So I think it's something real and legitimate and physical. I mean, I can still remember notifying LeBron James at the age of 16 that he was going to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated. That's awesome. In 2002. What was and his reaction? He thought it was pretty darn cool. Yeah. Um, was he a poised kid at uh, I didn't see it going this way but I'm happy with this yeah. was he a poised and interesting kid at 16 yes. yeah so he was a junior in high school when um, I went to visit him in Akron uh, that was the cover with the chosen one on it right yeah yeah I remember that um, and went to an NBA game with him and his boys uh, where Michael Jordan played he had a buzzer beater to beat the Cavs uh, but drove LeBron and his guys an hour up from Akron, an hour back. They just drove in your whatever rental car you had like or whatever. crappy rental car. Like <laughs> LeBron awesome. bought, brought out this whole like notebook full of CDs. Like he programmed the music. Uh, he had three of his friends, including Maverick Carter, who sat in the back. Um, and took him to McDonald's drive through on the way up. Took him to Applebee's on the way back. Was he, was he a nice kid? Yeah, genuinely nice kid. Um, and I had no idea they were going to put him... I, I didn't think they were going to put him on the cover because it was during the Olympics in Salt Lake City, and they did. That's amazing. I think he's going to turn out better than Shea Cotton. You think? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I'm just taking a stab here. Um, but I want to ask you one more thing that popped in my head. I will not name any names or anything, but I have a friend who's, um, who's working on a story. Yeah. And I'll just say it's NFL-related. And she's doing it about an NFL player. For a pretty major publication. And the team told her they could give her 10 minutes with the guy. 10 minutes. Okay. If that's you, as you sit here now at age 44, what do you do? Um, I would, I would probably talk to my editor and just say, look, they're only offering 10 minutes. That seems a little ridiculous. Let's talk about it and make a decision and go from there. Um, but I have a hard time thinking that's a, a useful story. That said, and I, I remember listening to your podcast interview with Steve Russian, uh, like Dave Henderson said he was going to give him seven minutes, oh, yeah. ends up talking to him sure. for like an hour and a half. So I've, I've certainly had that happen as well. So I guess it's just like a case-by-case case thing. It kind uh, of offends me. Does it not offend... Like the idea of it, we are giving you free advertising. Like you have a product... Your football team is a product. We are giving you free advertising, and you're giving me 10 minutes? It's tough because nobody's obligated to true. agree to do an interview with anybody. That is true. So, 
I respect that. Um, you know, and I think there's other things you can cover. See, I, th- I had this hat. I was supposed to do a story for Bleach Report a few years ago about Jimmer Fredette. Okay. Do you know about that? I, this is actually funny. You ever deal with Jimmer Fredette? Three-point shooter. I never, never yeah, dealt with him. Yeah, from uh, BYU. Yeah. And he was playing for the New Orleans Pelicans. And I pitched a story, and I told the Pelicans I was going to do it. And I was supposed to, I, I live in California, and they were, they were coming to L.A., and they said, Jimmer will meet you. We're taking the bus from the airport. He'll meet you, and you can sit with him in the lobby and talk with him. Yeah. And I said, great. And I texted the PR guy, and he said, all right, so Jimmer can give you 15 minutes. I think it was 15 minutes. And I'm sitting there in this lobby of this hotel, 43 at the time. Jimmer Fredette's probably 25. And I'm just like, I'm not doing this. Like, I'm not doing this. I'm not begging a 25-year-old for 15, to stay for 20 instead of 15. It's the only time I've ever done that in my life. And I actually texted the guy back and I wrote, you know, I'm 40-something years old. I've been doing this for 20 years. <laughs> I just don't feel like begging Jimmer for that for 20 minutes. I'm going to pass on this story. Huh. And I think the guy was genuinely shocked and slightly offended. Huh. I'm not saying I was right or wrong, but I never felt better about myself Interesting. in that moment. Was I a jerk for doing that? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think what I would have communicated if I had made that decision to the guy was not, I'm 43 years old. Yeah. It would have just been, I'm sorry, I won't be able to do this interview. My apologies. I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually go into the yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I also, that's, that's a very human way of looking at it. Right. And it makes me think of, you know, Richard Ford writing about Frank Bascone, the, the former sports writer. And there's some wonderful sort of commentaries about sports writing and the sort of existential midlife crisis that sports writers can go through. Oh, yeah, because uh, they stay the in, same age and we get older. Yeah, in in the book, The Sports Writers, is, is some of the best stuff. Great I remember, book. like, underlining passages from that. But, um, I mean, as you get older, I think you have to figure out what it is that you want to do. And, you know, maybe it's easier it, it's easier to relate to a 20-year-old athlete when we were 25 than do you when find we were that? 44. Do you find that in your own career? Like, you're still covering guys. Tenant soccer prodigies tend to be 16, 17, 18, 19. Can you relate with them in the same way? Do you find them as interesting? I don't play Fortnite, but I right. mean, like, I guess what I would say is I think there's ways to find common ground and do a good interview that don't involve me trying to be something that I'm not. Right. Um, you know, I just interviewed Zach Steffen, the number one U.S. goalkeeper these days. He's 23. Um, he's from Coatesville, Pennsylvania, home of Rip Hamilton. There you go. You know, and so we got in on that and, and just started talking and, you know, like, and a lot of these so-called kids or, you know, late teens or early 20s are actually savvier and smarter than maybe sometimes people think they are. How do you feel when they call you sir or Mr. Wall? Yeah, we, we get off that quickly. I hate and, that yeah, so you, you much. Call me Grant. Right. Um, but I don't know. I mean... Check back with me when I'm like 65 and right. see if I'm having trouble connecting with like the 22-year-olds. Yeah. But I haven't noticed it being an issue so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Grant, first of all, you let me use your podcasting equipment. <laughs> Second of all, we're sitting in the rain, though we're not only getting slightly wet. Uh, this is a delight for me. I'm being sincere when I say that. This is an absolute delight for me. And I, uh, I really, I mean, 
I take a lot of pride in your career. I feel like we came up together. I like seeing guys I came up with do well, you know, men and women. And just so, you know, thank you for doing this. Seriously. Thank you. And congratulations on everything you've done in your career. You didn't stay at Sports Illustrated as, as long, maybe, as I thought you would. Yeah, I didn't either. Um, but you've done some tremendous work over the years, and I've enjoyed reading it. Thank you, Brad. I appreciate it. I want to thank today's guest, Grant Wall, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow Grant on Twitter, at Grant Wall, and read his work in Sports Illustrated. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at 503-sports.com. My still newest book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL, is available everywhere. One can listen to Two Riders Sling and Yang on Apple Podcasts and Google Play, and your views are always appreciated. Music is by the fantastic MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding.